Innovation is that nebulous thing that every company wants, but few actually master. And it's a topic that is hotly debated at all different types of companies. Today we're taking a little step away from e-commerce and we'll explore what innovation really is and how innovative cultures are established. Welcome to Skewed. I'm Steve Nosentoski. And I'm Anand Naki. Let's demystify digital commerce. On the show today, we're talking to Nandini Naki, the head of insurance marketing at John Hancock, who's had a hand in innovation projects at companies of all sizes. Prior to her time at John Hancock, she was the president and CEO of Society of Grownups, a startup aimed at building financial literacy among younger generations that was recognized for its innovative approach, including winning a Webby Award in 2015. At Society of Grownups, she led the early incubation phase at IDEO, as well as the launch of the business. Oh, and she's my sister, too. Thanks for joining us, Nandane. Uh, we're going to be talking today about corporate innovation. I think one of the best places to start is just to get everyone on the same page and just defining what is innovation and how you see it um, at, a, at a corporate level. Well, I think that you're asking a question that could probably take an entire hour to answer. So what I'll, what I'll say is that um, the way that I think of innovation is that it's basically doing something new. So it could be a new category, it could be new product, new service in a way that is actually compelling for a set of customers or consumers. I think that compelling piece is going to be really critical because can innovation really exist without a market for it? Got it. So when we talk about innovation, uh, what are the different types of innovation that you see that exist in, in the corporate world? Well, I think what we could talk about is potentially different models, right? So there are models where you will see a large corporate um, will actually build out a separate subsidiary that is actually focused on innovation. You'll see large companies that will build an innovation lab that is meant to kind of infuse innovation into the rest of the organization. Um, you'll also see companies that have created innovation from the inside out. It is in their DNA. It is in their culture. It is in the fabric of everything that they do. And you'll also see companies where they have decided to hire an innovation officer. So they bring in somebody, a leader at the high, highest level, who will actually lead the innovation agenda, whether through existing resources or new resources. So the different flavors of bringing innovation in varies greatly, um, depending on what kind of model they're going to use. Interesting. So what, what are kind of like the benefits? I know we'll talk about kind of establishing a culture of innovation, but what are just some of the high level benefits do you think of kind of building that sort of innovation aspect into your, your core business function, like your day to day? How, how valuable is that for a, a business? So thanks, Stephen. I think that's a really good question. You know, I think what you're asking is how do you bring this innovation mindset to the work that you do every day? And um, I think it's a complicated answer because, frankly, if it was something easy to do, everyone would be doing it. But culture is extremely powerful and strong, as you know, through the work that you guys have both done. And despite some of the realities or the wishes of the board or the executive leadership team, it really comes down to the people as they show up to work every single day and being able to look at the things that they're going to do and say, I choose to put in an extra amount of effort or to potentially do what I've always done a little bit differently. And 
do it because it's the right thing to do for the company. Now that's that's very difficult to do because what you're talking about is you're talking about the urgency that someone has when they have a list of things that they need to do. So how do you actually create influencers within the organization or bring in different people that have a different mindset that can infuse the organization without setting off the immuno response? I think that is really, really critical and really interesting. Sure. So a lot of times when we talk about innovation, um, especially to companies that maybe haven't necessarily embraced that culture of innovation at a very deep level that you mentioned earlier, it's often seen as sort of synonymous to expensive. So how do you combat that mentality um, and how do you approach um, uh, an organization that is maybe struggling to wrap their head around um, embracing this this new way of looking at problems? So let's think about this in terms of opportunity cost, right? It's not something that's going to hit you in the face every single day, but it is something that is going to slowly eat away at your markets, at your profits over a long period of time. And so one of the things to really think about when you're actually um, framing out this conversation around monetary investment, whether it's resources or whether it's just dollars, is that if you do not move forward at the pace of your customers, at the pace of your consumers, it will eventually catch up with you. Now, some industries are much more sensitive to this. I would say you know, consumer packaged goods in many ways um, has always been hand in hand with the consumer. And some other industries like financial services, specifically insurance, has been a little bit slower to actually get to the uptake there. But everyone is understanding that they must have a strong value proposition in order to win at the end of the day, whether you're B2B to C, B2B or B2C. Yeah, and I think also there's sort of a sense of FOMO that not only do you need to think about your customers, but you also need to think about your competitors and what your competitors are doing. And you don't want to be constantly chasing your competitors. You want to be leading them and providing the best services or products to your customers as possible. So um, one of the things that I think makes uh, innovation teams and uh, innovative um, initiatives really successful is working with a broad swath of of the company. So how important are cross-functional teams to building um, innovative technology? I think they're extremely important. And when you're talking about cross-functional teams, I think you're talking about um, many different levels of diversity, for example, right? You're talking about um, people that are subject matter experts um, in many different areas, which could be technology, that could be product, um, that could be distribution, um, that could be sales, and you're bringing them together around a single purpose. And so they're able to actually bring their own unique skill sets and meld them together to create a really robust, comprehensive solution. Now, one of the things that is often forgotten when we talk about cross-functional teams is how important the diversity of thought, the diversity of opinion is in that conversation. Because you need to make sure that you're actually reflecting whoever it is that you're designing for. And I think that that is the voice of the customer. And I don't use customer and consumer interchangeably. I think that when you're talking about the customer, whether that is another business, if you're in a B2B, or whether that is the end consumer, it really doesn't matter. Um, It's agnostic. You need to make sure that that voice is coming through as you galvanize these cross-functional teams to to work with that insight. 
Yeah, and I think it's interesting just because it's never going to be a one-size-fits-all. Innovation for one company looks extremely different from uh, any other company. So as someone who's worked with a large spectrum of companies from startups to Fortune 100 companies, what are some of the differences that you've seen on different companies' approaches to innovation? Well, I think that from the startup perspective, you know, you have the benefit of starting with a blank slate. You can build the culture. You can bring in the people. Um, you know, those first five, ten hires, they're going to set that company culture going forward. And you can really build people and get them to come around a specific mission. You're attracting a different talent group to solve a problem. If you're talking about a very large organization, it's going to look different. And it's not that it is impossible. It is that it is really about what is the existing culture and how are you able to work with that culture to move them forward? It's interesting. It's very similar to marketing in a lot of ways. And let me give you an example. And so you may want to have hopes and dreams to move your brand forward, right? But you need to make sure it's going to be coming from an authentic place, first of all. Second of all, you need to make sure that the people that are working on this reflect who it is that you're actually trying to reach out to. And so that is where you know, the conversation around what is the best way to innovate is, is not, it's not, as you said, a one size fits all kind of solution. It is very, very specific to what kind of a place you're going to. So when I talk about the specificity of the company itself, you have to also consider what kind of an industry it's in. Has it actually failed in some ways or lost share or had an actual impact from a lack of innovation? In some ways, it's easier to have an innovation conversation in that kind of a climate. If you're talking to a company that has already been extremely successful for a long period of time, doing things in exactly the same way, then ask yourself, what is the incentive for them to do it differently? Yeah, and I think when we talk about startups versus large enterprises, uh, not to be hyperbolic here, but for a startup, it's really they really have sort of an innovator die pers- um, approach to to these sorts of things. And the reason why they even started as a business is because they had some sort of innovation or new way of doing things. Um, so I think it does very much become part of their DNA at a very very um, foundational level. Uh, whereas some of these bigger companies that have been around for a while don't necessarily have um, the same table stakes uh, that a startup might. And I think that's why you've seen, especially in the tech industry, uh, you've seen um, these companies that started as very small startups go in and disrupt uh, these uh, really big institutionalized uh, companies. So a good example would be Netflix coming in and totally blowing up the the video rental marketplace. Um, and now they've even taken that, um, not just to streaming, but they are creating their own content and continuing to innovate along the way. And I think that's something where they, they didn't just sit on their laurels uh, once they uh, once Blockbuster started to, to shut down. Um, they continued to push that envelope because I think they knew that they were sort of the trailblazer and all of these other companies were going to start streaming services. So you have Hulu and uh, YouTube, obviously, Disney+, Plus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if I can add something actually to what you said, it's really interesting. A lot of the companies that have been around for a long time, guess what? They started off as innovative. 
right? They, they would have never, they would have never even begun. At the time that they were in, they were extremely innovative. That is how they've lasted as long as they have. Now, the question is, how do you go back to that DNA that you're talking about, right? Which is, it used to be there. Now, where did it go? And how do they find it again? And, and then the next point is, how do you keep that cycle going? Because if you, if you grow any really innovative company, you name it, to a point, and then just sit back and then just say, we've done it, and they're going to end up just like every other company and another um, upstart is going to come through and, and try to disrupt them. So I think that that's a that's an, it's an interesting story. So let, let's take maybe an arbitrary example of a company that was originally innovative and maybe they've um, fallen back in that area. How would you approach um, getting them sort of rejuvenated and um, and ready to take a more innovative approach moving forward? I think you have to check the temperature of their own intrinsic motivation to change and do things differently. That's the first thing, right? Okay. So let's say that they're completely on board. They want to change. They recognize it. They understand it. Then you need to really be able to assess how much of intestinal fortitude do they have to actually see this through? Is this going to be something that's six months? Is this going to be five years? Are they going to invest the next 20 years in doing it? You know, what does that look like? And sometimes you're going to have that answer and sometimes you're just going to have to continue to wait and see. Once you understand those fundamentals, I think that that's when you can start to say, all right, now how much pain are they willing to take on in order to make changes? Because change is painful. As I said, you know, you're starting with people that are going to say, we've done this and we've been successful doing this. Why? What is my incentive to do things differently? And just because my boss or my boss's boss, or my boss's 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 boss told me to, that's not necessarily enough to really ignite people. So what I would say is show them. Show them what the point of arrival could potentially be. Show them what that future could actually look like. See how many of them actually have the skills where they could be upskilled, or they could actually take on these opportunities and be able to drive forward and then make hard decisions about talent, make hard decisions about resources, make hard decisions to make sure that you can actually um, get to where you want to go. And that brings up the next point, which is around KPIs, which I know that people talk about over and over again. But how are you actually going to measure success? Are you going to be looking at the sales levers? Are you going to be looking at the number of ideas? I mean, how are you actually going to um, build consensus and buy-in across the organization around something um, that is hard and fast and easy to measure and continue to report on that. I think that at a very high level is, is how I would look at it. Yeah, I think that's a great point around the KPIs, just because early on with a startup company, you're not going to see that return for a while. So you have to continue to focus on the actual innovation, how to separate yourself before you see that. When a larger company, you've been seeing those returns because of your previous uh, your previous innovation for quite some time, and you have to maintain that in order to be a successful company. But um, I think that's that's a really key point is how do you actually value how innovation, because it's going to come at some sort of loss, right? You're trying to set new ground. You're trying to gain ground that hasn't been dug yet, essentially. So to to put a monetary value on the resources necessary to innovate, um, 
I, I think it has to, it seems key that you have to identify that, hey, we might be operating at a loss for a larger long-term gain there. So I think that's an interesting aspect of understanding how to track that innovation, um, the resources necessary to ensure you're on the right track for that and what are the right metrics to, to look at for that. I think also you need to establish a culture of patience. To your point, Stephen, uh, sometimes these things take a little bit of time to see the results, but they do build upon themselves and compound over longer periods of time. And um, when when you look to make that investment, it's not just the initial investment of bringing in resources, buying new software, technology, etc. It's also uh, an investment of time um, and understanding that um, that these things need a little bit of time to uh, to incubate. So can you explain what some possible case studies that you've seen where there's been success or failure to kind of build this culture of innovation that we've been talking about? Yeah, so I it's not even a case study. It's my own experience, uh, which is that, you know, um, in my previous life, um, we were a part of a subsidiary from a large uh, insurance company. Um, and what we were trying to do was to really engage millennials around financial literacy, which was something that had not really been done before successfully. And obviously when you're talking about building out a service offering for that kind of a group, you have to absolutely think about what the digital experience is going to be. And so we were working under certain assumptions that People would want to be told, move a few dollars from this account into this account, move a few dollars from this account into that account. And then you're going to be able to hit these goals, which include retirement and taking vacations and buying a home. And that all sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? Now, here's what we missed, which is that people didn't necessarily want us to tell them what their priorities were. It sounds very obvious, but it wasn't. We put a year of work into it. We spent a lot of money behind it. And it wasn't until we actually did testing that we started to see that our demographic would sit there, you know, attitudinal behavioral demographic would sit there and they would look at, you know, what the experience was like and put in all of these many, 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 many inputs over 45 minutes and then wait and get this enormous readout um, that was indecipherable. It was a really poor experience. And instead, what we were able to do once we actually pivoted was that we listened to what they were looking for. They wanted to actually co-problem solve on what their priorities were. Who am I to tell you that you should prioritize buying a house over the vacation you want to go, go on, right? I mean, you may say that vacation is way more important to me and I don't care if I ever own a house. And so we were able to actually remove the complexity from the back end because we empowered our user to decide what their priorities actually were and then to solve through it. And what happened was that they were much more bought into what the outcome was, right? Because they were in it. Step by step, give a little information, get a little information, give a little information, get a little information. And then they were, they felt like they were empowered to be able to take action on it. So that's a clear example of not really understanding 
what the experience was and going after what we thought, put all the bells and whistles in, solve for everything, give it to everybody. They're going to love it. And that is that was an assumption that was false. And so we could have saved a lot of time and a lot of money if we had just done some quick and dirty you know, user testing earlier on in the project. Yeah, that, that really goes back to what you were saying earlier about KPIs and understanding what those KPIs are. And sometimes they're quantifiable and sometimes they're a little bit more qualitative. Um, but in, in our world in, in technology and in e-commerce, we see this a lot where we really, uh, it, it's critically important that you're capturing analytics as part of new customer experiences that you're building so that you can see how customers are um, are using a, a, a new experience or solution or product. Um, and then beyond just capturing those analytics, also interpreting them and making sure that you are drawing the correct conclusions from from that, but then also sprinkling in anecdotal data too. I mean, it's one thing to look at the numbers and see all those come into a nice dashboard that you've created and then make assumptions, but you also want to test those assumptions with, um, with user testing or focus groups or even A-B testing um, to put um, one experience against another experience and see the performance of both of those. And those are all things that I think, uh, Stephen, you and I have seen a lot of success um, in, in application um, with some of our clients um, as, a, as a way to really incorporate understanding what customers are looking to do and how they're using a, a, certain, um, a certain technology. Yeah, having that context ahead of time, like context-driven innovation is very different from like stumbling in the dark innovation. So having that not only ahead of time, but also throughout the process, um, I think is absolutely critical um, in, in a lot of different areas, especially e-commerce. Yeah. And so as we get into what drives innovation, I think when we look back internally, you you could take you could see two different approaches here where maybe you have a top down approach where um, a C suite executive for example um, makes a, a decree for lack of a better word that they want to take more innovative approaches to whatever it is that they're doing or a bottom up approach where maybe it's um, data analysts and analytics experts and digital marketing experts who are are looking at the analytics and other KPIs and they're seeing that what they're doing now isn't working um, so Nandini have you found that one of those approaches is better than the other, or how have you found that those two kind of need to meet in the middle? I think that what I have seen in my own experience is that it's really helpful to have an amazing visionary at the helm of a company. If you have a visionary who is already bought in and understands and has looked around and has said, you know what, um, the pie, you know, which is the market, is shrinking and we need to expand it. Um, or we need to get a bigger slice of a growing pie, or basically looks at it from a much more macro level and looks at trends. And by the way, doesn't just look at their competitor on the right or on the left. They're actually looking beyond their own industry. I think that can be extremely helpful because you need that in order to move forward. But I would also say that you need absolutely grassroots, bottom-up, people who are really hungry to do more and to do it differently. And the best is if you can get both. And even if you have both, I hate to break this to you, you may still fail. And it's the reaction to that failure that I think really starts to show the test. It's very easy to get behind a story where it has just been a win and a win and a win and a win. But when you start to actually 
test and learn, there are going to ultimately be many things that just don't work. And how quickly can you respond to that? Even in the example that I provided and gave, right? We could have easily just continued down the same path, you know, beating our heads up against the wall um, and not ever really discovered a better way to do things. But being able to be reactive and responsive um, and then actually having the corporate courage to say something, I think that is also where you're going to see that secret sauce around what can work and what can't work. So I don't know if that really answers every aspect of your question, but I do think that you need both in order to really, really be able to make strides forward. Now, I mentioned this earlier, which is about the immuno response of an organizational culture. So if you have one person that comes in and says, we're gonna change everything, parachutes in their own, um, you know, their own team of people and leaders who think the same way and just start to work in a vacuum, you're going to set off a very, very strong immuno response. And it may not be um, in a very public and loud way. It might actually be much more insidious. It's basically with people saying, I've seen this before. It lasts a year or two years. It goes away and we go back to the way that things were before and a level of cynicism there. And so that's where really making sure that you have buy-in across the organization is critically important and everybody understands the why. If you can get people to understand why they're doing it, why they should be able to do things differently, I think that's when you can really be part of a company that is really shaking up the industry, no matter what industry that they're in. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting just because I, I think there's value in having innovative mindsets throughout the organization and I think it's harder if you don't, I mean, hopefully you're the leadership and, and more senior level uh, people within an organization are the ones who carry through that innovation mindset from, you know, earlier days of the organization, things like that. But um, how, how do you ensure, you mentioned kind of like the, the case where you've seen maybe after a year or two, it goes back to that. What, what's your approach do you think is a way to ensure that you can, keep moving forward with an innovative mindset and not have it be, you know, not have those failures or the one or two projects that don't work out from derailing the, uh, the innovative mindset of a company. I think it all comes down to setting expectations. So you have to start with the upfront and say, there is a chance that this is not going to work. And I can assure you that if we continue to push the envelope, there will absolutely be something that will not work. And if you set those expectations, then what you're doing is that you're reframing what failure actually is. The best companies in the world celebrate failures and they talk about them and they say, well, that was something that we really pushed and tried, but maybe it was, you know, before our time, but it doesn't stop them from doing that work. They, they pull those teams up on a stage and clap for them. Now, a lot of other places, failure is a bad word. If you try something and it doesn't work, now you need to hopefully um, change the messaging, control the narrative, say it wasn't a failure. It actually was due to this or due to that. And you start to really get in your own way instead of just taking a step back and saying, okay, so what was it? 
And did we have control over it? And can we replicate it? And should we try it again? I mean, I think one of the things that I'm sure that the two of you have heard before is that we already tried this X number of years ago. It didn't work. So we would like to not do it again. Well, who were the players? What was the culture like? What was the context? Is it really worth saying that we're never going to revisit this again? And so I would say that there is a, there's an element of internal branding almost around how do you look at failure? How do you talk about things that haven't worked and what you've actually learned from them? Yeah, and I think it's about embracing failure as a very critical part of the overall process for building innovative technology or experiences or products. Um, I, maybe it's a cliche at this point, but I think when you fail, that's kind of how you're trying to find where that cutting edge is and where you may have gone too far or too early. Um, but then how do you take apart whatever it was that failed and see what you can use in, in future in future projects um, and how you can how you can apply maybe a similar approach in a different way uh, for a more successful outcome. So a lot of times the way that we approach uh, these innovative um, experiences is that we build a proof of concept um, that then eventually the goal is to be scaled up. And I think it's really uh, oftentimes the POC is really successful and there's a lot of devils in the detail that really rear their head uh, when you start to scale that up. So what is your approach from scaling something um, either that's um, in more whiteboard format or small POC to something that's ready for, for prime time? I think that is the question. That is the question when it comes to innovation, because, you know, you know, I'm sure you've heard the adage that, you know, if your POC or your MVP is, um, is not something that you're embarrassed of, then you haven't, you haven't done it right. But there's reputational risk that companies have, right? They may not want to just trot out every single thing um, in its early stages. So getting buy-in on what exactly the MVP is or the POC is, that is really critically important. And then being able to gauge how exactly you're going to be able to get it out into the wild is another part of that question. Yes, you can do a lot of upfront testing and we've talked about this before, right? You can do upfront testing over and over again, but there are still going to be things that are going to prop up as soon as you put it out there. And so it is just being able to say, this is what we think of as an MVP or a POC. This is how we are optimizing. And this is a continuous loop. I think that what we're talking about is the fact that sometimes people want to look at this in a very linear fashion. You work, you get something out there, you continue to build on it. But sometimes you have to go back to the beginning and you have to restart. I mean, it's, it's, you can't see this because it's a podcast, but we're talking about a circular spiral that's moving forward. There are going to be days, weeks, months that you are going to go backwards, but that is only so that you can propel forward. And so if you set up that example that it is not this linear start and finish, and then you just, you know, wipe your hands and say, we're done, you know, it's, it's over. I think that's where you have to build that that muscle um, to be able to say you're going to continue to push it forward. I think a lot of times, sometimes companies are um, afraid of moving backwards. And so in an effort to not have to move backwards, they try and fill the POC, the MVP with 
everything that they want and make it the production ready environment. And so you get scope creep and then it takes more time and it costs more. And then uh, it kind of sours the the mood around that um, that initiative. And so it kind of fails from the very beginning because they weren't thinking about that we can actually go back and make incremental improvements on this and uh, take it apart and put it back together again as we as we go. And I think that's also really important to understand that. Um, and it, I think it's it's related to that that failure aspect that we talked about before. But you can go back and fix things that aren't perfect. And if you're trying to get a perfect solution, you're really never going to get there. And that's kind of the point that you always need to keep working towards a solution that is better um, and incremental improvement than before. Yeah. And I think it's it's there's a lot of value in having that sort of communication with the user base as well, right? Because sure, it'll, it'll never be perfect, but you know, if, if say you're debuting this feature on a website or something, allowing easy communication for customers to be able to submit feedback or ensuring that you have those relationships with key stakeholders who will be seeing this feature for the first time, ensuring that you're you're proud of, of what this new feature is, but also displaying the ability to say, hey, this isn't perfect and that we're willing to iterate on this and feedback is really valuable in that case because there are things that you can, uh, you were talking about earlier, that you can learn from the customer's use of that tool or of that feature that you can learn on and iterate on that is accelerates the process more than if you delayed and tried to perfect everything that you could just in-house before that time. So I think that's an interesting aspect of that as well. Um, Okay, so one more thing to talk about here. When we think of innovation, we tend to gravitate towards customer-facing products and technologies. Uh, however, there's, there's often more room for improvement on business tools and internal products and applications. So how can you balance between those two differing um, sort of focuses there? I'm really glad you're asking this because this is my first purview um, in working in the B2B and B2B2C environments. And what I can tell you is that the distributors that we work with, they're people too. That is the, con if, if there was uh, one tagline, one slogan, it would be that they are people too. I mean, I know that it has been historically not as big of a priority necessarily, right? Because you're like, these people need to use X, Y, or Z in order to do their job. So does it really need to be slick? Does it really need to be easy? The answer is yes. Yes, it does. Because what you're talking about is you're talking about humans sitting in front of something, trying to get something done so that they can actually optimize their own time um, and actually look really good in front of that end user. So if they're constantly toggling between three or four competing screens, if there's just a long wait, um, that all comes back. It all comes back. And what I think is most exciting about kind of understanding a little bit now about the B2B2C space is that you can use a lot of the same methodologies, the same tactics around measurement, around experience, uh, that you would for an end consumer as you would for another customer or employee or anyone else. And I think that that is, that is really exciting because from a marketing perspective, if you look at it, you're talking about multiple audiences, right? You not only have to be able to talk to that, that next line and the next line and the next line, but you need to make sure that there's a thread that goes all the way through. 
And that is a level of detail, complexity that makes it really, really exciting. So I would say that um, that is something that I think smart companies have already woken up to and they recognize it and they see it. And as they start to shift priorities towards the fact that um, they should be putting resources towards that experience, they're going to be able to see that there are many, many, many examples of creating a happier end experience because they've been able to take care of everything that happens before that end point. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point about like these buyers or B2B users are, are humans too. And the same people who are buying apparel on slick B2C sites in their free time, they're going to work and they're using B2B technology. And so uh, we, we've found that uh, I think a while ago, and I think the, the, the thinking is changing here, but still maybe slow, slow to change, that we saw that for B2B technology, no one cared or thought about the user experience. And I always thought that that was a strange way to approach things because as, especially as the workforce is getting younger, they're becoming more accustomed to um, really sharp, slick experiences. And it's really important that we uh, provide business users as well with the best technology and the best tools and the best way to use them. I think you, you nailed it. You nailed it because if you think about it, you said exactly the right thing. These are humans who consume media, right? These are people that buy things online. I mean, how would you feel if you went to buy an airline ticket? I know, bad example now, but okay. You went to go buy an airline ticket and then they said, great, thanks for your purchase. We will send you that ticket in 30 days. You'd be like, what? But do you know how many experiences are like that? you know, for other industries. And we just say, oh, I guess they're just going to have to deal with it. Well, they're used to, you know, having, you know, their ride sharing app and having everything be instantaneous or at least getting some sort of confirmation that they've done what they're supposed to be doing. And so we can't expect people to work in these, these vacuums, right? Where they're like, I'm in work mode and I'm in now personal mode or I'm now in my digital mode and now I'm in my physical mode. Those are all things that we have created. Uh, these are constructs that we have used that frankly, no one is interested in. Nobody's interested in the organizational structure and the internal politics. No one is interested in you know, what you said that you can do and what you can't do. They're interested in how you're going to treat them every step of the way. And I think that that's an exciting opportunity. Well, Nandani, thanks so much for coming on the show uh, to uh, to talk about innovation. I think this has been really interesting, and it's nice to sometimes kind of st- take a step away from uh, from e-commerce for for skewed um, and talk about some some more uh, governing ideas and philosophies around how we approach big problems. So uh, this has been uh, this has been great. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, this was great. Thanks for listening to Skewed. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or feedback you have. Feel free to email us. Our email address is hello at skewedpodcast.com. That's hello at S-K-U-E-D podcast.com. Subscribe to Skewed wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.